This episode is sponsored by Gopher State Tape Library, a 5013C corporation. Established in 1974, the library has been archiving recovery talks of the many 12-step recovery fellowships across the globe. For almost 50 years, these have been distributed worldwide. The library is the only all-volunteer organization doing this work in existence. There are no paid employees. Thousands of downloads, MP3s, and CDs can be obtained at www.gstl.ecwid.com. The Gathering with Roger B. occurs monthly in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Attendees are 12-steppers, those who have been affected by another's addiction, and some who are simply interested in improving their personal level of life satisfaction using a variety of spiritually-based tools. It is also used as a tool for study groups nationwide. The Gathering's talks are generally tied to one or more of the 12 steps, but are always guided by spiritual concepts, principles, and ideas common to most faiths. Topics are drawn from a variety of sources, the 12 steps, many of the well-known wisdom texts, science, and other teachers that speak to a spiritual solution to life solutions. Roger has been in recovery for over 40 years and has spent thousands of hours in service, sharing his experience, strength, and hope. He has created curriculum for treatment centers and leads workshops and retreats throughout the United States, Canada, and Europe. Roger is a certified spiritual director and offers insight into spiritually-based living skills that are relevant to all people, whether in recovery or not. When you read stories, um, the ones that come to mind are, are uh, stories about Christ, when Christ was healing people, and they're these incredible, miraculous changes. And uh, the only thing that was required, apparently, by the recipients was faith. And uh, when I got here, I didn't have much of that. I had faith, but I had it in all the wrong things. I had it in me. I had it in booze. I had it in drugs. I had it in in uh, intimidation. I had it, but I had it in all the wrong things. Um, I did not. I would not be the poster child for AA. I was not one of those guys that came to your meeting and just took off like a rocket. And no one was amazed at the progress he made. I was the guy that was sitting around the meetings and everyone was saying, do you see that guy over there? If you don't do this, you're going to be like him. <laughs> it's the truth. And uh, that's exactly what I was. You know, I had a, uh, a one-step program because I came here with a really high opinion of my intellect. And I was much too smart to have need for the other 11 steps because they dealt with all dealt with God all dealt with a higher power, all dealt with things that I had made up my mind about when I was 12 years old. I had no need for it. And uh, so anyway, I drank like most of us drink for effect. And the effect was transformative. If you read the promises in the big book, that's exactly what booze did for me. It is exactly a couple drinks. I intuitively knew how to handle situations that used to baffle me. A couple more drinks, I would... Uh, I would understand how my experience could benefit you to a great degree and depth. Um, a couple more drinks, you know, I just had an ease and comfort that was beyond description. And uh, that's why I drank, because it fixed me. It fixed me. And when it stopped fixing me, it's so subtle. It's It was, for me, it was subtle. It wasn't like one day I was drinking and it was wonderful, and the next day I was drinking and it was horrible. 
it was a very slow, gradual thing. If the guy would have said, here's your, here's your uh, first drink of grain alcohol, now I want you to know there will be a little price for that. I know you're only 16, but this will cost you your future. It will cost you your career. It will cost you the family you don't know you're going to have. It will cost you a marriage. It will cost you a house. It will cost you everything you have materially. And then, by the way, we're going to start dissolving your interior. We're going to take your self-respect, your self-esteem, your integrity, all of that. I would have said, absolutely not. That's not a good deal. But that's not what it did. It said, come here, baby. Come here. (laughs) Come over here with me. And it just seduced me. It was beautiful. And by the time, our book talks about this, the big book, Alcoholics Anonymous, talks about it. By the time it became known to me that it was a problem, I was beyond being able to do anything about it. No breaks. It had occurred to me that things were getting a little out of hand. And occasionally I would I would stop drinking. And uh, the problem is we never stay stopped, do we? I was a binge drinker, and I would drink for days. I would drink for as long as I could until I couldn't drink anymore. Either ran out of money, jail, unconscious, whatever. And then you come off one of those runs and you go, oh, man, you're in bad shape. Bad shape physically, bad shape. I mean the kind of thing where your hair hurts, you know, just bad shape. And you hear yourself say, man, I'm done. I'm just not going to drink all week. I'm not going to drink all week. I'm just taking the week off. I was young. And after two or three days and a few hot meals and some showers, I started feeling good again. And what is the thought that comes? I, I think I overreacted. I think all week is a little much. But I I didn't even hear that part of the thought. It just was like someone would come along and say, hey, it's Wednesday. And I go, yes, it is Wednesday. I'll be right down. You know, and it was without any apparent conscious thought. Just, it would just, there, and I would be gone again. And I did that for a long time. Um, And I, uh, you know, I thought I was doing it successfully. I thought I was doing it successfully. And I ended up in the doctor's office in my late 20s, 27, 28. Had lots of conversations with professional healthcare people. Have you? Doctors, shrinks. They just don't know how to talk to us. Sometimes I wish I was a doctor. Or I could just do doctor interviews for them, you know. <laughs> because I know the questions. You don't say something like, how much do you drink? You know, I'm going, I know all the time isn't the right answer. (laughs) You know, I say, often, often. He's thinking often. What's that? Two, three times a week? I'm thinking, yeah, two or three times a week. Monday to Wednesday, Thursday to Friday, Saturday to Sunday, three times a week. You know, do you drink in the morning? No, no, no. I knew that was a trick question. I had seen the list of questions. My dad sobered up 10 years before me, and I knew that it was a trick question. Do you drink in the morning? Because only problem drinkers drink in the morning. I said, absolutely not. And you know this if you're alcoholics. It just was true as true could be. Absolutely not. But the rest of the answer in my head was, I don't even get home till the afternoon. <laughs> now, if you would have said, you have to have a drink when you regain consciousness or when you get up whatever time that is, then I would have been in a dilemma of whether or not to say the truth or not. But you know what I'm saying. John McCart, uh or Wino Joe Leith, all drunk in the 60s down south, 
said, there's only two questions you got to ask a guy to, to know if they're alcoholic. One, have you ever had the roof of your mouth sunburn? <laughs> and two, have you ever been run over by your own car while you were driving it? And I could say yes to both those things. So anyway, I had the interview with the doctor who didn't understand me. And I really wasn't looking for understanding. I had a distended liver and I had a lot of pain in my organs. I had a lot of pain in my body. And I was hoping this guy would say, here's a script. This will take the edge off all this discomfort. No, he ran a bunch of liver tests and kidney tests and reported back to me that I was killing myself. And I had about 18 months of joy left and I would be dead. My response to that news was relief. It was a sigh of relief. If you could have seen me on the inside when I stood with that doctor, it was just, ah, thank you. This is going to be over soon. Because if you have chronic alcoholism and take it to the end of that run, you know the last years of drinking, they're no fun at all. They're necessity. Just necessity. There's, you maybe can get to oblivion. You can maybe get to blackout. But there's no more in that little zone where you hit it and everything is just perfect. Just perfect. That went away years ago. Years ago. So, I was a devout atheist. And uh, some other things had happened in my 12th and 13th year that I came to conclusions about education, about my family, about the medical profession, and about uh, church. And uh, I fashioned my orders, and which is, I'll do it my way. And if you're an alcoholic, you'll understand this. It never once occurred to me that I might be wrong. <laughs> it never once, I'm 12 years old, 13 years old. It never once occurred to me that perhaps the school system knows more about educating the mind than you. Perhaps your little shrink, Murray, knows more about the human inner workings of the mind than you do. Perhaps the padre at church knows a little bit more about religious education than you do. Perhaps your parents know something more about raising the kids than you do. It just never occurred to me. Never occurred to me. So I went back to drinking. And I just was waiting not to wake up. That's what I was doing. And when we'd have what you thought was a party, and we'd be coming to the next day, and you'd hear people moaning, you know, it was the kind of thing where you open your eyes, and it's black. And you think, oh, maybe I'm dead. And then you realize your face is in a pillow. Or you open your eyes, and it's all white, and you realize you're staring at the ceiling. But the point is, they're waking up going, oh, oh my God. I can't believe you. I'm waking up moaning, going, oh, shit, I'm still here. I was doing stuff in quantities that should have killed me. I'd been hospitalized for barbiturate poisoning. I had a huge amphetamine habit so I could keep drinking. I mean, just no reason for me to be there. And uh, Dr. Bob used to talk about this in the old days about being surrendered by the bottle. I uh, animated that my dad sobered up 10 years before I did. And I knew AA worked because I saw it work in his life. I saw him change. And uh, it was irrefutable. Our book talks about, the book Alcoholics Anonymous talks about when you run into someone who's carrying this message, the message has to have depth and weight. I, When you sit across the room or the chair or the table from someone and they describe your guts to you and you identify, it's over. You can run, you can say no, 
but you'll never, ever, ever escape that moment of identification. As soon as I identify, it goes from I can't do this to I won't do this. And I was always telling myself, can't, 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 don't believe in God, can't, can't, can't. It was won't, won't, won't. Ideas, 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 ideas. Won't, won't, won't. When it became won't, then it was, well, why would you choose to die? So, it's a long, convoluted story. Um, I detoxed at home in a flop house, home. <laughs> so, in a flop house down on Lake Street with two other guys, one who was dead from drinking, one who was still drinking. Um, and I told them I was going to detox, and uh, I needed them to babysit me. They thought this was great entertainment. So they sat in the corner of the room, nailed some two-by-fours. We had this floor-to-ceiling windows, nailed some boards across the windows, and they watched me uh, shake it out for about nine days. And I kicked barbiturates, amphetamines, marijuana, alcohol, everything at the same time. Don't recommend it, but I'll tell you what. Not only was it memorable, I didn't have to replicate it again. I never drank again. I never drank again. I got high again. Because getting high wasn't my problem. See, I had an abnormal reaction to alcohol. That's what AA says. we got an abnormal reaction to alcohol. We do? Yeah. That's a depressant. And it wakes us up. Puts a normal person to sleep. Makes them tired. Makes them nauseous. It's like lighting a pilot light for me. And then I'm just looking for the knob to turn the flame up. <laughs> so... Uh, what was I saying? I got lost in the euphoric recall. <laughs> Flophouse, Lake Street. Yeah, so I shook this out. And uh, our book says, good idea to go to the hospital to do this, but, you know, who would follow instructions? Besides, my dad went to AA, and I sure as hell not doing that, right? So after over a week of dry heaves, hallucinations, throwing up blood, soiling the bed, all kinds of audio and visual hallucinations. Just, you know, the whole routine. Without anything to take the edge off. The first coherent thought my head put together was, well, I'm sure not going to AA. That's a powerful illness. When the first cohesive set of words you could put together is, well, I'm sure not going the only place there's help for me. <laughs> so I surrendered. So what? So what? So now I'm a sober asshole. Excuse my language, but, you know, everyone in this room has done physical sobriety with no recovery. And I defy anyone to tell me there's a worse state of being. I have, I lived through some crappy stuff drinking. And I had some rough years, a couple rough decades, actually. <laughs> but they were nothing compared to the first years I was sober with a one-step program. They were nothing compared to that. Living fully sober and becoming more and more conscious of the past that I had created and having no anesthetic for it and no options. No options. One of the first promises in this book is in the Ford of the First Edition. It says they recovered from the seemingly helpless state of mind and body. There's an idea. doesn't say they recovered from alcoholism. They said, you can recover like we did from the mental and the physical aspects of the illness.
That's a promise. That says you won't be crazy forever. You might be crazy for a while, but you won't be crazy forever. Well, I didn't read that part, did you? Hell, I didn't read any of this stuff. How it works, please. <laughs> There's a, <laughs> no, I didn't read any of that stuff. Because AA was like religion. It was for weak people. And I was still doing the I'll do this my way thing. And my way was I'm powerless over alcohol. My life's unmanageable. And absolutely no argument. There's an idea. Powerless over alcohol. My life's unmanageable. It never occurred to me that I was powerless. Did it to you? It never occurred to me I was powerless over alcohol. I know I had a drinking problem. It was obvious. I had kidney and liver damage. I had warrants in a half dozen states. I had drug dealers looking for me. I had restraining orders. I had divorces. And all that stuff had to do with me, and all of it had to do with drinking. Bad checks, IRS, federal state, five years, you know, I had problems. But I had no idea that I was powerless. I thought I was a drunk. Well, if that was true, think about this. If that's true, then why is it? That when we stop drinking, everything doesn't get better. Who's in their first year? Okay, you're not going to like this. <laughs> For me, when I got sober, <laughs> it all got worse. I'm not saying it has to be for you, but it gets worse. Why? Because it's not about physical sobriety is important. It's really important, the cessation of the poisoning of my body. Absolutely. But you can stop drinking. You can come here for a month. You can hit a cop in the chops. You can do a lot of things to stop drinking. The problem is you can't stay stopped. I can't stay stopped. Even when there is an overwhelming desire, need, and want to stay stopped, I can't. So it should become apparent This is not a drinking problem. If it's not a drinking, I sure got in a lot of trouble from drinking. Yes, you did. Drinking is a symptom of the problem. And you go to the chapter of the agnostic and it's talking to us about if a mere code of ethics, better philosophy of living were sufficient, we would have recovered. If drinking was the problem, we would all stop drinking we get our bearings, thank you very much, 30 days, I ought to do it. Two weeks, I'm fine, thank you. And we just go back and resume useful, productive lives. The five-year plan would illuminate, you know, it would just, the portfolio would expand. <laughs> Shit. More degrees, more money, more hymns, more hers, maybe no, maybe less hymns, hers, I don't know. But you get the point. I'm dying from my thinking. The chapter of the agnostic that I'm referring to, the next thing is it says the object of the book is for the reader to find the power. And the power will solve my problem. It's singular. The power will solve my problem. That's saying I only got one problem. In my mind, I've got thousands of problems. And they're all related to this drinking thing. This is saying you only have one problem. And the power will solve the problem. What is the problem? I don't have an effective power in my life. The problem then becomes any thought, any idea, 
a conglomerate of an idea is perhaps called a belief. Any assemblage of these word images is the problem that separates me from my creator. That's the problem. You don't think so? Watch. We got four ounces of ethyl alcohol here. Bonded bourbon whiskey. Okay. Now that's a problem, but only if I put it in my system. It's not a problem sitting there. But now I'm 15 days sober. I'm 30 days sober. I'm six months sober. I've been thinking. I've been thinking about all the reasons I don't need to do what the rest of you say you're doing. And I have some doubt about that. My friend Dennis said an interesting thing. You know, when he got here, he read the book and he was very excited by what he saw in the book. But he got very confused because he wasn't seeing it in the meetings. Wasn't seeing it in the fellowship. There's two fellowships here. There's a fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous, the requirement which to join is a desire to stop drinking. Thank you very much. You can come drunk. You can come sober. All you got to do is bring a desire to stop drinking. Okay? There is another fellowship within that fellowship called the Fellowship of the Spirit, which is predicated on a life based in the steps. That's a whole different thing. There's a lot more requirements to get into that bugger than it is to walk in the door to a bloody meeting. Okay? Anyway, I get off track. Now I forgot what I was saying. Damn it. This happens. What? Senior moment. No, senior week. <laughs> senior moment. What? Oh, problem. Okay. So we got the four ounces of booze here. That's only a problem if I take it in my system. Right? Then the phenomenon of craving kicks in. Maybe not the first time, second time, third time. The phenomenon of craving kicks in and I'm off drinking. Right? So that booze is a problem only when it's in my system. So if you've been separated from alcohol for more than three weeks... Everything that you're feeling as a craving is an obsession. You can't have a physical craving once you've been detoxed. Yeah, I know it feels like it. I know it shakes like it. I know it sweats like it. I know it feels like it in your guts and your neck. I know it feels like it, but it's an obsession. You know what an obsession is? It's just a thought, just an idea that gets so big you can't think of anything else. Hold your hand out here. Hold your hand out here. Promise. Try it. Just do it. When you hold your hand out here, you can see your hand, and you can see all kinds of other parts of the room, right? As you pull the hand in closer, this is the thought getting more and more obsessive. You see less and less of the world. Pretty soon, all you can see is the thought. That's an obsession. An obsession is based in thought. My problem is thinking. You don't think so? Let's talk. How many people have relapsed? Liars, come on. (laughs) Jeez. Okay, for those of you who have relapsed, let's talk about why we relapse. Why do we start again? Just yell it out. Anything. How was it? I'm an alcoholic. alcoholic. What? Boredom. Boredom. Good one. Anyone drink for courage? What? Yeah, I thought I had a hold of it. Yeah, I got it. I got it under control. Ah, uh, no good replacement for the buzz. Mm. And I've been buzzless for so long that I'm getting thirsty. Damn. Why else? Anyone ever drink out of fear? Yeah. Oh, man, fear. Loneliness. Loneliness. Oh, if I only had a woman. A puppy. A puppy. Yeah. But that, let's see, which is, which is harder to house train, the puppy or the guy? 
Yeah. If I only had, yeah, if I only had fill in the blank, a relationship, a new car, a better job, a different job, a different set of in-laws, a different wife, a different husband, a different girlfriend, two different girlfriends, larger breasts, smaller hips, bigger ass. Maybe if I pierced my head. Maybe that would do it, you know. If I just had different clothes, I mean, look at the advertising world. That's another one. But any, you get where I'm going with this? It can be anything. I broke a shoelace, I burned the toast, there was no toilet paper, or I can't stand this another second. It doesn't matter. But all of those things are ideas. And when they present, I'm powerless over the idea. I'm powerless. If you weren't powerless, you wouldn't be sitting here. Now we got a problem. If this thing, and AA says, the main problem of the alcoholic center is in his mind. Should be apparent after you study the first few chapters. Your problem's in your thinking. Well, there's a good question there. Do I believe that or not? Do I believe it's in my thinking? It's one thing to say yes, but it's another thing to act yes. The bottom of uh, this uh, section of the book, what is it? Um, and there's a solution. <laughs> Here's some ideas. <laughs> oh, it's, <laughs> it's thinking, okay? Those are all the reasons I relapse. But, you know, after you've been sober well and you've had some quote-unquote success in sobriety, your alcoholism is not going to walk up to you and say, guess what? You've done so well for six months, we think you should screw it all up. It's not going to say that. It's not going to talk that way to me. It's going to maybe come in the back door and say, you know what? Rough day. Rough day at work, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. God, I can't get along with her. Oh, oh, oh. oh we need to do pray, 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 pray. The next day, man, another rough day. Oof. This is just getting uncomfortable. Just uncomfortable. And then pretty soon another thought comes in. You know what? Six months isn't very long. I don't know that you're on such solid ground. You know, you've never been successful at anything, really. What makes you think you're going to stay sober? You know, they're talking the rest of your life. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it just takes my breath away. God, I was 10 years sober before I believed I was going to stay sober at all. I mean, it was just, and it was only by the sheer fact of it. I couldn't deny it. I had had a drink. I haven't had a drink. I haven't had a drink in 29 years. I haven't had any mind-altering stuff in 28 years because, you see, I had some ideas about other substances. <laughs> I never had a problem with pot. I never had a problem with cocaine. Except sexual dysfunction. Um, I never had a problem with barbiturates, really. You know, I really didn't. And what happened for me was a, quite a gift. For an atheist, um, I started having abnormal reactions to those substances. I didn't get high a bunch after I quit drinking. I tried everything once. And I almost totally flipped out and took myself to the ER. I had a total adverse reaction to everything I put in my body. And I remember thinking, um, this was about a year into this project, <laughs> man, nothing works. Nothing works. There's no escape. And I hunkered down and, and uh, at 18 months sober, I had a gun in my mouth. 
a funny way to take a second step. I had a gun in my mouth, and it was because I did not want to live. It wasn't because I wanted to drink. It was because I couldn't stand the psychic pain. I couldn't stand what was going on in the neighborhood all the time. All the time. I was talking to someone before the meeting about this. Self-loathing was my bugaboo. You know, I'm seeing people get sober and all that. Talk about getting money and jobs. I don't care. I want to know when, excuse me, when does this feeling of wanting to kill yourself go away? You know? And secondarily, when am I going to stop wanting to kill all of you? You know? That's what I'm interested in. You know? Easy for you to laugh. <laughs> it wasn't so easy for me. So I got this gun in my mouth because tough guys always have guns. If you're a tough guy in here, you know, you got to have weapons. <clears throat> Just for the record, the real tough people don't need anything. You stand in their presence and you know you're near death. Scared people <laughs> carry weapons. So, of course, I had a lot of weapons. <laughs> and uh, so I had this gun in my mouth. You're talking about ideas and thinking. Every day I woke up, I wanted to kill myself. I wanted to cut my throat. I wanted to take a handful of pills. I wanted to blow my brains out. I didn't have the guts to do it. I didn't know how to explain it. You know, I just, I just, every day I was consumed with this idea of killing myself. Just get the hell out of here. Because I had a one-step program. So I had no relief. I had no relief. And people were going, Jesus, how are you staying sober? You know, I was working in, in bands in those days, and I sobered up playing in bars, and the band was wanting me to drink again because I was more predictable. I was a little more even-keeled when I was smashed all the time. And uh, I wouldn't. <clears throat> and uh, so I put this gun in my mouth, and I'm going to blow my brains out because I can't stand physical sobriety. I can't stand no recovery. I can't stand living with my thinking because I'm out to get me. And I'm winning. So the first thought that comes to my atheistic mind, here's an idea, think, think, think. Mighty small caliber. It's a funny thing for God to say. <laughs> have you considered the caliber? <laughs> no, it couldn't have been God because I didn't believe in God. But the thought came. Mighty small caliber. And my hand was trembling. I could feel it in the barrel of my mouth. And The second thought was, you know, you pull the trigger, you'll end up paralyzed from the cheekbones down. You'll wake up in the hospital. One of those guys will be standing at the end of your bed with that blue book going, hey, you want to do the steps now? Blink once for yes, twice for no. <laughs> Not a pretty picture. And uh, I had known someone that tried to kill themselves and blew the side of their face off with a shotgun. And I knew it was possible to live through that stuff. And, and that was my second God shot. And the third shot was, are you even willing to believe in the possibility? And I heard myself say yes. I qualified my second step. So as we came to believe, in time, the idea will come to my consciousness, the idea will come into my thinking that there is a power, and that power is capable of restoring my thinking. It doesn't say you now have to believe it. It says you will in time believe it. So the only question is, are you willing to believe? And if you can say yes, move on. Problem. God's all over those steps. If you've read them, you know what I'm talking about. They make no bones about it. And, uh, you know, problem. Problem. So we get this problem of thinking. It's not that we can't think. 
It's that we overthink. It's that we think too much. It's that we think about the wrong stuff. It's we can't control our thinking. There are some people in the scientific community that say we have about 60,000 thoughts a day. Really? 60,000, yeah. And about 55,000 of those are repetition. Oh, we call that resentment. <laughs> yeah, really? You know, well, how many thoughts are you aware of? Not 5,000. I got, I got a pee. I'm hungry. Roll up the window. Roll down the window. Eat. Eat some more. Get something to drink. I mean, you know. I can't control what comes into my mind. That's my first argument. Well, I can't do anything about this. I mean, I got a circus going on up here. I got no control at all. This says you don't have any control over what comes into your mind, but you do have choice over what you do with it. I do? There's a new idea. What would that look like? What would that look like? You know, when I had a thought, I thought it meant I had to do something with the thought. Like act on it. And I thought my thinking was who I was. I thought I was thinking. If I was thinking and I am my thoughts, I am a lot of unpleasant things. I'm a murderer. I'm a stalker. I'm a rapist. I'm a thief. I'm a carjacker. I mean, you know, if I'm what I think, I'm in big trouble. So I got this problem. I got a thinker I can't shut off. What do we do with that? A says inventory. Inventory. What do they want you to do? Well, they say, look at your resentment. Four step. Everyone done a four step? Sucked, huh? (laughs) That's not in the steam builder, by the way. If you got depressed after that, that's appropriate response. It's a drag. You know, I found out it was worse than I thought. <laughs> I mean, I knew I was a crudin, but I had no idea. And I had to take several passes at it before I even got down to the, my first four step. I had three names going into my eight step list. <laughs> Two of them were my parents. Come on. That's not searching and fearless or thorough. Anyway. Um, but it's interesting, isn't it? It says, uh, it says, look at resentments. And it says that resentments can kill us. You're all familiar with this part of the book, right? It says resentments are number one offender, kills more alcohol, destroys more alcoholics than anything else. You believe that? Do you believe that? I wasn't sure I believed that. I needed more information. <laughs> Resentment. If that's true, they're telling me that an emotion has the power to kill me. They're not talking metaphorically when they say destroy. They mean dead, gone, destroyed. Zero end. Nothing left. Destroyed. Resentment is an emotion. A resentment is an event, real or imagined for us, real or imagined, that happened sometime in the past, half second ago, 15 years ago, 50 years ago, sometime in the past, that appeared to hurt or threaten us. 
And we've just been reliving it and reliving it and reliving it. So it says, look at your emotion. Look at your resentful. What are you resentful at? And it says, look at some areas. What, what are you resentful at? Easy. This is not hard. Here are the things I'm pissed off at. What's the cause? Oh, let me tell you what they did to me. Oh, right? That's not hard. Then it asks you to look at how you were affected by it, and it gives you areas to look in. Self-esteem, security, ambitions, personal or sex relations. Okay? Gives you some areas to go looking in. And then it does a tricky thing. It says, get that all down and look at it, and what do you conclude? And it, and the thing that's nice about this book, Alcoholics Anonymous, is it gives you the answers to the questions. Because they want me to come to certain conclusions. So they give me that exercise that I just described to you in a, in a rough way. And then they say, look at your three columns, and and uh, what do you see? And I says, well, it's apparent that this world and its people were often quite wrong. Absolutely. To conclude that others were wrong is as far as most of us ever got. Why? Because if I can hang it on you, if I can blame you, if I can be the victim, I have no responsibility. And if I have no responsibility, there's no reason to show up and try anything, is there? Because I'm just so damaged. I'm just so... It's just really a sad story. And it has been for a long time. And it's just the way it is. It's the way it's always going to be. And can't do anything about it. And So I'm screwed. And that's why I'm the way I am. The usual outcome was that people continue to wrong us and we stayed sore. Absolutely. Sometimes it was remorse and then we were sore ourselves. But the more we fought and tried to have our own way, the worse matters got. There's a good question. It's not formed in this question there. But the question is, Roger, when you try and manage your life, does it get better or worse? under your management? That's the question. Can I look at this and say, well, these people are all screwed, all these institutions are screwed, everything is screwed, and it's all their fault. Okay, how's that working for you? As in war, the victor only, <clears throat> only seemed to win our moments of triumph were short-lived. Conclusion. It is plain that a life which includes deep resentment leads only to futility and unhappiness. And if I was taking you through the step, I'd turn it into a question. I said, has that been the conclusion you've reached? By looking at the first three columns. That the way you're doing this has led to your unhappiness and futility. Because they want me to understand that I can't manage my life. So they take us through some more questions and stuff. They get over here a couple pages later and they say, this is where it gets ugly. Putting out of our minds the wrongs of others is when we resolutely look for our own mistakes. Pardon me. Must be a typo. So far we've been looking for their mistakes, and it's quite—it's coming quite easily, frankly. And I'm finally glad that I got this out and really looked at it, because it was as bad as I thought it was. And now it says, look at you. Putting out of your minds what they did. Resolutely look for your own mistakes. Where have we been selfish, dishonest, self-seeking, and frightened? Self, 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 self. Thoughts based in self. What's in it for me? What am I going to get out of it? When am I going to get mine? Why are they after me? Why are they doing this to me? So what I find out is I want you to love me. 
and you do something that doesn't match the script that I have for you, and I get resentful. I'm hurt. And it's affected me in these different areas, my ambitions and emotions. And so in order to garner your love, I lie, cheat, and steal from you. And I wonder why it doesn't work. I don't do this once. I don't do this five times. I do this for decades and decades. And I can't see that it doesn't work. Resentment is an emotion. The emotion is based in a perception. Okay? I have a perception that you have done something that's offensive to me, hurt me. Okay? Real or imagined, who cares? What is that perception based in? Thoughts. My thinking. You see, I am scared to death most of the time. So when you don't act the way I need you to act, it threatens me. And I think that perception is so right on that I act like it's the truth. Because I have a thought that goes with that perception. What a jerk! Sometimes I don't even say, well, I wonder if I did something to promote that. And after five, ten seconds of reflection, I'll go, absolutely not. It must be him. Or it must be her. Must be. I'm too damn good. So I get this thought. I get the perception. I get a thought. The thought has a value. It, it, they all have a value. Just use a plus or minus scale. The more you threaten me, the higher the value I place on that perception. You know what? That was just damn wrong. That just was not right. Or the favorite one of the alcoholic, that's not fair. <laughs> that is not fair. <laughs> Jeez. No, it's not fair. So what are you going to do about it? So you see where I'm going with this? It's all based in the thinking. All our inventory work, we look at the fears. and say, oh, why do you have the fear? Oh, because of this. What caused it? Oh, this. Then it says an interesting thing. They tell us self-reliance. And selfish self-centeredness is the root of our problem. So then the question becomes not how are you affected by that fear, but what part of self created that fear? Did your need for emotional security create that fear? Did your need to have your sexual ambition satisfied create that fear? Did your need for money, power, and prestige create that fear? All perceptions again, all thoughts and ideas. All in my thinking. No wonder I can't sleep. I've got to defend myself against the entire world. 24-7. I have to do it while I'm sleeping because i got to get up. When I'm up, i got to get ready. i got to be ready. I, can't, I don't have any ramp-up time. Resentment. Fear. Fear is based in the idea, what? That an event has already happened in the future that's affected me. It is. Think about it. I'm afraid, really. What's happened? Well, nothing. I've been thinking. What have you been thinking? Not good things. Not good things. They're all out there, and I can't do anything about it. Scared? Death! And that's why I'm going to punch you in the face. I know it doesn't look like it connects the dots for you, but it does for me. I think I'm going to feel a lot better in a minute. So I don't know I'm afraid. Fear is based on the idea that somewhere in the future... An event has happened. I've already responded to it with my thinking, perception, the value I put on that, like it's already happened. Now I get this other thing, resentment, which is always in the past tense. 
Well, if you don't have any recovery, you're going to be going back and forth between what? Resentment and fear. Resentment and fear. Resentment and fear. Resentment justifies how screwed I am. Fear tells me why I can't take another step forward. There's no God there. Everything that we study here and everything that I've studied in other spiritual disciplines says God is in the now. What are the instructions and the steps? All this stuff and this early step stuff is to get me straight with my old ideas and my old behaviors in the past. We get free of that in eight and nine, our old, our old, our history. That's when the guilt and the shame starts to lift. When I start exhibiting a changed life, I can't change my behavior until my thinking changes. Now, some of you have been around the fellowship a long time. You've heard the axiom. You can act your way into right thinking, but you can't think your way into right acting. That's true in the beginning. It's absolutely true. I don't need to explain to you, nor can you hear, why you need to show up and make the coffee and do this thing with me and go to the jail and do this other crap with me. Just, what is our phrase? Get in the car. Get in the car. Get in the car. Sometimes we dress it up nicer. If you want what I got, go where I go and do what I do. But get in the damn car. Better yet, drive your own damn car. (laughs) Follow me. Jesus. But just come on. Because you're not going to understand why. You're not going to believe it. So we act. Take the right actions. Show up at the meeting. You want a drink? Call me first. There's an action. Call me before you drink. Why? Because if you call me before you drink, you probably won't drink. You call me drunk. Why didn't you call me? Because if I would have called you, I wouldn't have drank. And I wanted to drink. Oh, I see. Well, then call me when you're sober. Okay. You can act your way into right thinking to a point. But this whole thing, this discipline we call the steps, in part is to teach me how to think. To teach me that I can think. To teach me eventually that I may be even to trust what I think once in a while. What a concept. I have been the biggest con on me of anyone. I can con you on Monday, you on Thursday, you on Wednesday, you once a month, you twice a year, but I'm conning me every day and really well. So we got a program that teaches us to become God-reliant or higher power-reliant or whatever synonym you want to use for God. I don't care. It's irrelevant. But relying on something other than you. And we do that through these steps. But if you look at the the uh, chapter on sponsorship, chapter 7, working with others, it clearly states, my job as your sponsor is to help you become God-reliant, not Roger-reliant, not meeting-reliant, not workshop-reliant, not even step-reliant, not big book-reliant, not sponsor-reliant. All those things are in place to support me in finding that one thing, the power. And the power solves my problem, which is any idea that separates me from God or any idea that separates me from one of these ideas in recovery. I like prayer. I like inventory. I like the idea that I should be allowed one or two resentments. After all, I've made such progress. There are a few sweet ones here. You know, there is a payoff. There is a payoff in your suffering. There is a payoff in being a victim. It's all embedded in your ideas and your thinking and your beliefs. So we uh, get taught how to think. What does the serenity prayer say? 
Give me discernment. Let me know the difference. Give me the wisdom to know. Wisdom is applied experience, not applied theory. And a lot of people that know all the words, that can quote you big book page numbers and paragraphs and recite it for you and can't do it for squat. We're interested in the action because that's what's going to change us. Act your way into right thinking, yes, and to a point. And then you have to start thinking your way because we know this. Every action is preceded by a thought. You can't act without thinking. You might not hear all the thoughts. You might not hear all the thoughts, but there's a thought with every action. I used to have what I called, I used to be known as having kind of a short fuse. (laughs) Hard to believe, I know. (laughs) But, you know, you would do something, it would, it would scare me. It would immediately translate into resentment and then would immediately morph into anger and come out back at you about ten times the volume that you gave it to me. And that would happen in an instant. In an instant. And you would say, you got to do something. I can't do something about that. That's just the way I am. That's just the way I am. You press B3, I sing B3. You know, oh, no, 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 no. No. Not true. Where does it say that? It says that in the 11th step. It says when you're angry, when you're scared, when you have doubt, pause. Ask for an intuitive thought or direction. It doesn't say when to start again. The implication is, is wait for the direction. If you don't get the direction, don't do anything. Don't do anything. Really. So um, there's other people that have different ways of talking about this. Um, there's a tiny gap there between the stimulus and my response. It's an invisible gap to me. But A says you put the gap there by inviting God in. Pause. That creates a space. Now, what are you going to fill that space with? Going to fill it with God? Going to fill it with prayer? Going to fill it with meditation? Going to ask for an intuitive thought of direction, which reminds me of the first three steps right away, and the fourth step, because I've inventoried something. I know I'm diseased. I'm uncomfortable. What am I uncomfortable from? What I'm thinking. It's not what you're doing. It's what I'm thinking about what you're doing. It's not what I'm doing. It's what I think about what I'm doing. I'm not punished for what I think. I'm punished by what I think. It takes God out of the punishing business completely. Not a concept that worked for me. When I heard that, I went, yeah, that's the deal. So then the challenge becomes, how do I think better? How do I think better? A's got a bunch of little exercises for that. Well, continue to watch for selfishness, dishonesty, resentment, fear. When these crop up, here's some things for you to do. Talk to another human being. Build in some accountability. Let someone know what's going on. Hopefully someone that knows more about what's happening than you do. Not one of your uh, buddies on the raft, but maybe someone a little further along the river. Um, Then it says, make any amends if necessary. Well, I'll know that by having the discussion. Well, I need to do that. Then it says, uh, what does it say? It says, well, you inventoried it. You picked up. I'm about to lie. Okay. So you got the, the inventory process. You talk to someone immediately. You make any amends if necessary. And the fourth instruction is resolutely turn your thinking to someone you can help. Not another, even another alcoholic. Just the problem is all you're doing, Roger, is thinking about you. Start thinking about him, her. Do something to take your mind 
off that idea. Your mind can only grab one idea at a time. So I got this idea, and it's saying, go over here to this Peter idea. Okay. Okay, I get over here on this idea, and pretty soon, if I do that, and I keep bringing my attention outside of me, whatever was going on melts away. Sometimes I can't even remember what I was so pissed about. That's the formula, if you want a formula. And all of it has to do with inviting God into that space. And you practice. You practice. That's all you do. You just practice. I read an interesting quote about failure the other day. It said, the failure is not falling down. It's not giving up. And in our book, it talks all the time about failure, about missing the mark. That's not the point. The point is, are you willing to grow towards something better? Then pick yourself up, learn from your mistake, and plow on. Because you're going to make more mistakes and more mistakes. The mistakes aren't the important thing. The intention is the important thing. And if I'm willing to learn, if I'm willing to grow, if I'm honestly remorseful for what I've done, I will change that behavior and I will grow and learn from that experience. If not, it says eventually you're going to drink. You just will. Because it's objectionable to me the way I behave. And if I offend me long enough, I will reach for my solution, which is booze. And if I find a new solution which works better than getting drunk, which seems to be this God idea, I'll learn to reach for that. Practice, practice, practice. So what am I thinking? You know, we get these moods. We get the thought. Random thoughts. There's a whole lot of thoughts that are appearing that don't seem to have much significance at all. Fold your arms, unfold your arms. Armpit sweating, whatever. It doesn't matter. But every once in a while, one comes through that we really like. Like, what's he looking at me like that for? <laughs> and we'll grab one of those thoughts, and we put a value on it. I don't like that. How much don't you like that? About six. Six on a ten. Now that I've thought about it a couple more minutes, now it's about eight. That's about how much I don't like it. And then it creates a mood. That mood is my consciousness. It's my state of being. And that mood will attract more of the same. Proof's in the pudding. I know none of you have ever woken up with a resentment. But when you have a resentment, it starts out about topic A. If you don't address that resentment within a number of hours or a couple of days, that resentment will have permeated every perception you have about your life. Because what has become unacceptable here in this one situation now gets projected out over everything and nobody is doing it right. Everything is unacceptable and I can't stand it here. Now we don't have the ability to control what pops into our head. But we do have the ability to choose the approach we take with it. And in the beginning of your sobriety, that takes a lot of practice and time and thinking and writing and all that other stuff. But after a while, the promise is that it will become part of the fabric of your being. And slowly over a period of time, most of us, we change. When I claim progress. Claim progress. I think that's enough. New episodes of The Gathering are published twice a month and can be found on Spotify and other major podcast apps. You can follow The Gathering on Spotify and others to receive monthly notifications of new episodes.